The content in this program is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any information or other material as investment, financial, tax, or other advice. The views expressed by the participants are solely their own. A participant may have taken or recommended any investment position discussed, but may close such position or alter its recommendation at any time without notice. Nothing contained in this program constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Please consult your own investment or financial advisor for advice related to all investment decisions. Don't forget to follow at Lead Lag Report on Twitter to join these conversations live. And check out the Lead Lag Report at www.leadlagreport.com. Use promo code PODCAST30 for two weeks free and 30% off to get access to award-winning research and anticipate stock market crashes, corrections, and bear markets. And now, on to our Lead Lag Live discussion, hosted by Michael Guyon. I'll have this as I do with all these Twitter spaces as an edited podcast fairly quickly. So check that out on all your favorite podcast platforms under the Lead Lag Live banner. I've been very fortunate to get some good momentum in terms of downloads there. My name is Michael Guyot, publisher of the Lead Lag Report. Joining me for the hour is Craig Fuller. This will be a really interesting conversation around the state of supply chain currently here. But Craig, for those who are not familiar with you, Introduce yourself. Who are you? How'd you get interested on in the, in the media supply chain side of things, and what are you doing with Freight Waves? Yeah, so I am the founder and CEO of Freight Waves. I have been around the trucking industry my whole life. My father started what's now the fifth largest trucking company in the United States, and my uncle started the eighth largest trucking company in the United States. So I have been around the trucking industry and the logistics industry really since deregulation. Deregulation was in 1980, and so I've lived through what we would consider the modern logistics and supply chain industry. I started Freightways back in 2017, really because someone growing up in the freight industry, recognizing that it is the backbone of the U.S. economy and, frankly, the global economy, yet there hasn't or was not really a real-time information service that provided intelligence for folks that are in the global logistics industry. So think of what Bloomberg or CNBC do for the modern financial economy. There really wasn't an equivalent of sort of real-time breaking news and high-frequency data for the supply chain industry or the physical goods economy. So we set out to build that at FreightWaves and really started out in 2017. And our focus is high-frequency data, as well as we have 50 editorial and journalist located around the world that are providing editorial content and editorial commentary on the high-frequency data. And then our high-frequency data is focused on really providing a 24-hour perspective of what's moving in the physical economy. When you think about supply chains, is they're going to lead the broader economy by oftentimes quarters, sometimes by months, but certainly they are a leading indicator of the physical goods part of the economy. And that's what we aspire and that's what we do. All right. So there's a lot that we'll get into based on that. I, I'm I'm curious what goes into a a significant player in the trucking trucking industry. So you mentioned your father. What what does that look like as an entrepreneur? I, I have to assume that there's there's some pretty interesting barriers to entry there. Actually there's no barriers to entry, which actually makes it far more difficult. You know, trucking is an 
incredibly easy industry to get into. And that's one of the reasons you have such significant boom and bust cycles. You know, it is one of the most fragmented industries on the planet. There are something like 400,000 trucking companies in the United States. And so it, because it is so easy, basically, you just go out and borrow money from a bank and you basically start a trucking company. You have independent owner operators, which have one truck. For something of scale, maybe you're growing to 100 trucks or 500 trucks or beyond. It takes significant ability to finance that and capitalize that. My father started his business in 1985 and really benefited from a couple of macro factors. One was deregulation, uh, which started out in you know, 1980 when it actually started on the Carter and then it really took effect in, in 1980. Basically, when the trucking and transportation system deregulated, what that enabled was sort of the modern supply chain that we see today, just in time transportation systems. Amazon, frankly, their logistics network would not be possible and really e-commerce wouldn't be possible had we not deregulated the trucking industry. And so my father benefited from the macro trend really doing long-haul trucking. And the business really those days was highly profitable. The industry was quite attractive to capital. But that's changed because the market has become so fragmented and so volatile. And only the volatility has been created because intermediaries, brokers have really taken a significant portion of freight that are in the market, and they're effectively day-trading the market. So if you think of all markets, once they get mature, you have intermediaries that are playing really day, you know, trading inside the market. It's created a much more volatile part of the industry. And frankly, these boom-bust cycles are quite, quite violent. And so it is a difficult market, a difficult industry to get scale in. It takes the ability to hire drivers, it takes the ability to capitalize equipment, and really survive the up and down cycles of the market. And so what we're seeing right now is this, we, we sort of entered COVID off the back of a freight recession that was in 2019. COVID had sort of these super cycles of sort of a pre-run up to when COVID in sort of March of 2020, where we saw this massive surge in freight, where people were doing everything from toilet paper to personal protective equipment to food. And then we saw this significant bust happen at the end of March. And then we saw this massive run of freight that started up really in April all the way through until it topped out earlier this year and has since become an incredibly difficult market for many in the industry and is now, particularly the smaller companies, and is now impacting the largest companies. How do you define a recession in in the freight space? So what exactly does a freight recession mean? Yeah, so it's, as is every definition of a recession, is hotly debated about what the definition of a recession is. So a freight recession for us is really just significant downward pressure in all of the fundamentals of the market. So it's volume, significant deterioration in, in freight volume, and significant deterioration in price. And really, the best way to look at it is, when the spot market is is under the contract market, in other words, once you've had an inflection point of spot rates that continue to deteriorate and pull down that contract rate, that would be considered a freight recession. And that's exactly what we've seen. We saw it uh, in 2019. We're, we're seeing it now. It is hard to argue that the freight market today is in a recessionary environment simply because of how fast the freight market has deteriorated and continues to deteriorate. And from experience, what what are some of these lags that typically occur in the freight space relative to interest rates, right? Because I think that at the end of the day is sort of the the real question in terms of when these higher rates actually impact the movement of goods. 
Well, I, you know, I, you know, it's sort of outside of my domain of expertise in terms of how dramatic interest rates itself impact the freight market. You know, what we focus on is the fundamentals of freight. So we're, we're, we're not broad economists, nor do we necessarily look at interest rates themselves as a sort of direct correlation to freight demand. What we're looking at is, is just the movement of goods and the activity inside the ecosystem. So certainly, you know, this is an industry that's capital intensive. And because it's capital intensive, it faces significant headwinds or economic headwinds when interest rates increase. But ultimately, interest rates historically have increased when economic activity is good, which is really a bullish part of the freight market. So it's hard to sort of look at interest rates themselves as being a driving the boom and bust cycle of freight only if it sort of takes down the goods part of the economy. I think what we're seeing right now is this really significant set of conditions or challenging set of conditions is you have sort of the macro environment slowing in the goods part of the economy. You have the massive amounts of inventory and sort of the bullet effect playing out in the supply chain. You have a shift in consumer spending from goods really during COVID to services. You have high or low levels of unemployment, which make it incredibly difficult for trucking companies to hire. And you have capital goods cost increase because trucking equipment is more expensive to buy trucks and trailers. Maintenance and mechanics are more expensive, so it takes more money to, to spend. You have diesel, significant pressure on diesel prices just because of a significant diesel shortage that's here in the United States and really around the world. And so all those macro factors are putting significant headwinds on the trucking industry. And, and because of that, it's not so much looking at interest rate itself to say this is somehow impacting the freight industry. It's more looking at all these sort of macro factors that are impacting it. You know, the trucking industry is a capacity constrained industry, as is all forms of transportation. And being capacity constrained means that ultimately the supply and demand balance in the trucking economy, and make no mistake, the trucking and all forms of freight is a commodity. I think this is often, oftentimes misunderstood. Being a commodity means that ultimately price is the determining factor in how freight is moved. And so, in other words, a red truck and an orange truck and a yellow truck and a blue truck are all going to be fungible. Ultimately, Price is the ultimate determinant in how freight is routed and who it's routed to. Because it is almost entirely driven by price fundamentals, it means that it meets the definition of being a commodity. It's that, you know, a lot of folks think about commodity being something that they can store or bunker. I can bunker fuel, I can store it in the ground, or I cannot drill for oil or lumber, I can put it into a warehouse. Trucking as a commodity of freight generally is not a commodity that I can store. I can't store it because it's ultimately time it takes from get to point, point B. But price is the only thing that really matters when you're moving freight because it is all fungible. Capacity itself is fungible. And because of that, it's all about the balance of supply and demand. And what we have seen over the past two years is this massive increase in capacity trying to match the massive increase in freight demand. And that was okay because they were really the capacity increase was actually slower than the freight demand increase caused by all these sort of macro fundamentals that were taking place across the goods part of the economy. And now what we have seen is that the increase in capacity has accelerated past the increase, or or I should say the what we now have is a new environment of a decrease in freight, 
And so what we've actually seen is a situation where price fundamentals in the freight market are not holding. Volume is decelerating or declining. And there's more capacity in the freight market than what we've seen at any point in history. And so because of that, we're, we're dealing with a very challenging environment that looks like it's going to take a significant purge of capacity before we correct it. So I, I think all this is interesting. For those in the, in the Twitter space, you'll see at the top of the nest, I'm sharing Craig's pinned tweet, looking at tender volume, the index data there. And the, the tweet, Craig says, as you wrote, right, the trucking market continues to weaken. First part of November, having one of the biggest volume drops of any non-holiday period all cycle. And why it's happening, retailers have everything in stock for the holidays, and there's no need to replenish inventories. That's something you often hear in the media, but I think it's an interesting dynamic as we enter the holiday season that a lot of the retailers really are front-loaded with stuff, and they don't necessarily need to replace it. I do wonder if that means there's going to be even more deep discounts than we've seen in other holiday cycles because everyone's trying to offload their excessive inventory. Yeah, I mean, I think what has been happening is this has been actually in the data since March of this year. And so if you think about, you know, a lot of times people in the industry think of, or people outside the industry even, think of the ocean market, the container market sort of leading, being a leading indicator of the US trucking market. It's actually not as simple as saying one market. You know, these, these the, the container, international container market and the trucking market, the containerized freight in the United States are, it's, it's an ecosystem that is highly connected. But one of the things we saw in March was a significant slowdown in trucking activity. And that was, we came out with an article that there was a freight recession. I think the title was why I believe I wrote it. Why I believe a freight recession is imminent was because we saw a really sort of significant counter trend to both the fundamentals of what the market had been doing and also an a-seasonal change in direction. And when we looked at that, we said, there is a significant amount of headwind for the U.S. freight market and, frankly, the global freight market. The U.S. trucking market was far more responsive to near-term changes in supply and demand, or should say near-term changes in demand, than any other market in freight on the planet. And the reason is that the lead time to move something in the trucking market is typically measured in days. If someone needs something to a warehouse they're typically going to order that four or five days in advance, and most on average, two and a half days in advance. And so because of that, if there is a near change in demand, you will see it in the trucking market first. It did. We started to see that happen in March, and we knew that the market, the freight market was weakening. It was two weeks later that Walmart and Target came out and said they had too much inventory. So we knew that there was a slowdown in March. We Suspected it was inventory, but we weren't 100% sure. We got confirmation that inventory levels were building when, when the two major retailers reported it. But the container market was still quite strong. It started to weaken. We saw it out of China. So these are bookings or loadings at the point of origin, which will lead the import data, the customs import data, by, in this case, was 90 to 120 days later. So we saw it in May deteriorate when China, quote unquote, reopened. And there was an expectation that would be a quote-unquote tsunami of container flow coming from China. We didn't see that. We actually saw the opposite. We saw significant contraction in volume take place in May and June. And we reported that imports were quote-unquote dropping off the cliff. And the reason we, we believe that was going to happen was because 
the amount of freight that was being loaded overseas was had significantly contracted. And then now we have seen what's happening in terms of import flows at the port of destination in the United States. We've seen a significant contraction. So we know we're headed into a really challenging holiday season. But what in terms of whether we'll see significant discounts, I, I talked to a head of supply chain. This would have been back in, I believe it was April of this year. No, it would have been in May of this year. Who said? Who told me that their plans? This is a major importer, big box retailer. That they actually weren't planning on doing significant discounts. What they were planning on doing is just not ordering as much. And so, a lot of the items that are in excess inventory happen to be high dollar discretionary consumer items, and it's much easier for them to store it in their warehouses and just liquidate it over time. And effectively, what they will end up doing is just not ordering more product. And that is the reason that, and that's exactly what we see in terms of container flows, is that we're not seeing inventory replenishment in terms of inbound containers, because the retailers themselves are sitting on so much inventory that they can just sell it without having to do significant discounts. Now, if we roll into January and they're still sitting on a lot of inventory, I suspect that that may change. But right now, they have no incentive to do that because what they've done is they've cut off the flow of new inbound goods for the most part and are simply just letting all of that inventory burn off. It's funny you said that it was March when he started putting that out there. March was also when lumber prices happened to have peaked for the year, at least. And I've heard you talk about this on on other podcasts, Craig, but talk about – how important freight is to housing and what maybe the message is there. Yeah, we, we think direct, and this is direct and indirect activity in the trucking market specifically, is as much as twenty house, the housing market. This is both new home construction. We're talking about lumber. We're talking about carpets that perhaps are flooring that you put in your homes, you know, drywall, et cetera. All the things that go into building a house. It's sort of one side of it, so it's new home construction. And then you have the sort of secondary part of the housing market, someone moving into a house that's new to them. So I sell a house and I move, I, I sell my old house or leave my apartment and move into a house that's new to me. It's not a new construction build. But there's also a lot of activity that takes place there. Is you think about every time you've moved, or at least when I've moved, you know, you buy new appliances, uh, perhaps because you bought a home that had older appliances. Maybe you, you, uh, uh, you know, change the carpets out. Perhaps you're buying a new TV or furniture for the house that you've you've acquired. And so all the things that take place is we think direct and indirect activity in housing as much as 20% of the U.S. trucking market. And because it's such a significant part of the trucking market is it drives an enormous amount of freight activity. So it's not just in the lumber activity, but it's also all of the things that people end up buying. These are high dollar construction discretionary items that we talked about. That's the very stuff that's sitting in a retailer's inventory is that they've stocked up so much on those items that we bought in the COVID cycle. And that really early part of the COVID cycle, think about everything that was in high demand two years ago, everything from, you know, guardian equipment to pools, to, to grills, to, TVs, whatever we ended up really enjoying in the first part of the cycle is that retailers ordered so much of that those items. And a lot of that's tied to housing and direct or indirect housing activity. And now that that is declining and slowing, is it also means that you're going to have a drag in inventories for retailers just going to hold more inventory simply because they they have stocked up so much. And so 
we believe that's create and creating just another headwind for the U.S. trucking market. I have a question for you. Can I ask Craig if there's other data supporting the inventory full hypothesis? Could China lockdowns be partly responsible for low freight? Last data point was uh, Q2 retailers, uh, JIT, JIT problematic. I'm not sure what JIT is, but or just in time, I guess that makes sense. What, what are your thoughts on that? That question. Well, look, I think the height of the COVID lockdowns, and we know that they're still locked down, but sort of the height of it would have been back in April and May of, of this year. At that height, we actually saw that freight was still moving, that supply chains were still liquid. There was still a lot of freight activity. We saw it drop by as much as 40% in that May to June timeline when we reported it, and we've seen it drop by another third. So even in the height of the lockdowns, if you go back to where we were earlier this year, when COVID really proliferated back when you know these major port cities were shut down, these major economic centers were completely shut down, and you know Shanghai uh, uh, really grinded to a halt, Shenzhen grinded to a halt. In that period of time, freight was still moving. They were finding alternative ports to move freight out of, and. And what we're seeing now is that the volumes are just not in basically when they re, quote unquote reopened or it, at least reopened partially is there was still a significant volume. And so one of the things to keep in mind is that China does not produce things when they when talking about exports specifically just to produce them is they have to have somebody pulling on demand. And we certainly know that there's a lot of excess building and infrastructure inside their own country. And perhaps the Chinese government has flooded the global economy and building infrastructure through some of their, their policies. But is it look if you look at containerized freight demand, which is the predominantly retail goods, 75% related to consumer, the stuff that sits in containers is largely consumer-driven. And that is basically cons- the U.S. consumer market pulling on that chain, pulling freight from China is the way to think of it. What's happening is there just simply isn't demand pulling freight out of China. And so what we're seeing is that is basically is that the U.S. consumer is pulling back and retailers have so much inventory is that they simply don't need to replenish those inventories. And that's what we're seeing in the data. So we can we can all talk about China lockdown and its impacts, but when we saw the China lockdowns back in April and May, freight was as much as, you know, a much higher level in terms of volume, even in the height of that, than what it is today. So for me, I, I don't necessarily buy the fact that the, the lockdowns themselves are what's, draw, uh, what's really impacting freight flows. We believe that the reason that container, specifically containerized freight flows are declining is because of the U.S. consumer activity and retailers are simply just consumers are just not purchasing the volumes that they ask. And let's take the container market completely outside of the discussion for a second. And let's look at U.S. trucking. U.S. trucking obviously isn't impacted by what China's policies are. It's indirectly impacted because if there is a slowdown in the Chinese economy or Chinese production, obviously, it's not going to be as much freight to move. But that showed up well you know, early in the cycle is March, and we've seen it decline. And only 10% of the U.S. trucking market is directly related to imports. And and so when you, you look at it, you're, you don't have any evidence that this specific situation is related to to necessarily China's policy. It's It's more to do with the fact that you have a slowdown in the U.S. trucking market, which is really 
far more exposed to consumer activity. Which is really, actually, I'm just trying to think through this as a little bit of a thought experiment. So you've got the inventory buildup that has to go away for freight activity to pick up. Let's say that happens at the same time China eventually reopens. Okay, the news is all over the place as far as whether they're going to do it sooner or later. But I, I would argue that China reopening may actually be disinflationary because now you get more goods coming out of China, at least for a, a moment in time. And likely the consumerism on China wouldn't be enough to sort of counter the, 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 that supply side of it. So you could have this interesting dynamic where the inventory is still elevated. China suddenly comes back on in the global market. Now you've got even more supply to put even more downward pressure against already elevated inventories. I don't know if that makes sense, but there's an interesting well, dynamic there, even from a disinflation perspective. I mean, it's look, having studied freight markets, it is a stretch to believe that companies, even the perhaps you know, say the ones that have the least sophisticated supply chains, simply don't move product without demand. You have to have somebody on the other side of. You're not going to spend money in freight moving a product unless there is someone on the other end to take possession of that product and buy those products because it's simply too expensive. Even when container prices are are quite low compared to where they have been over the past 24 months, you're not going to move freight at, for practice. P- people don't do this for practice. They don't do it for, you know. And so you have to have something pulling someone on the other end of that chain that's pulling and demanding and consuming those goods. And so if China were to reopen or, or reopen and sort of stop its when it's lockdown, it doesn't suggest that we're going to see a change in activity in the freight markets, but simply because there's nothing to suggest that anyone's going to consume those goods. And so I don't necessarily believe that that is a factor. I think what we're going to see is a completely different it's not going to change the economics of the freight market. It's certainly not going to change the demand cycle. Get some of the audience to ask some questions. You know, I it's hard for me to look at sort of SMB versus enterprise. I mean, the vast majority of freight, if you look at total freight demand and volume, gets moved. You know, the, the vast more part of the volume is high volume shippers. And so these are these are largely, you know, one of the largest components of consumer packaged goods, it's grocery items. It's the CPG part of the market it tends to be the high volume shippers, and they're the ones that are gonna, you're going to see it show up in the data. So if you look at sort of the S&B side of the market, where you would probably see that side of the market would be in LTL volumes and in parcel. And LTL is held up relatively well in this part of the uh, freight market. It has a little bit more exposure to in the industrial side of the economy than perhaps the broader part of the truckload market is. but I don't have any data that refutes or or confirms your thesis, and nothing in what we track would necessarily prove or disprove that. We we look at macro volumes by just the overall movement of goods, and it certainly was exaggerated over the past few years because the big box retailers and large companies were ordering so much. And one of the sort of proxies to that, the way to sort of look at that is number of shipments versus volume of containers. And what we saw was that the number of shipments didn't increase relative to the number of containers. And what this really suggested to us is that when you look at those two deltas, when you look at the significant number of vo- the mass amount of volume per bill of laden versus the shipment increases not increasing versus the volume, what it suggested to us is that the big box and the major 
companies, the large brands, are simply ordering so much more relative to what they historically had that they were the ones driving a lot of these bottlenecks. I don't know a ton of SMB businesses that sort of overordered in excess versus what we saw the big box players did. They were the ones that were driving most of it. But I don't have any data to refute or, or confirm what you just stated, unfortunately. UBS and FedEx's earnings are, are somewhat telling. FedEx saw a significant contraction. It has more exposure to Asia than, frankly, UBS does. It's, it's more international as a carrier than than what UBS is. But we we you would see the SMB market in that parcel and market before you would see a truckload. SMB businesses just don't tend to move big truckload volumes. Because they just don't build truck, they don't build enough volume to ship big truckloads. Did, did everyone just lose their minds post COVID in terms of this buildup of inventory? I mean, you know, back in whatever first quarter of last year, the narrative was we're, we're re-entering the Roaring Twenties. I mean, if you remember, that was a big thing that was being pushed out in the media. It's fascinating to me that it seems like everybody got into the same spot because they believed in this massive economic boom, somehow not realizing it'd be more inflation, maybe less growth, and that the Fed would come in to counter all those narratives? I, I think it's a little less. So the thing about supply chains is that particularly in a just-in-time world, which is really available only because of the transportation networks that have been built out. So it's the just the overall sophistication and velocity of these transportation and freight and logistics networks that have enabled us to have just-in-time inventories. And so what happens if you sort of look at it, and this is the classic bullwhip example, which if you haven't read up on what the bullwhip means in a supply chain, I highly recommend it because you have no better case study than COVID. And what it basically means is that, and you have to remember when you're ordering goods, even in a very optimal supply chain or even the biggest brands that perhaps take take more ownership of the production side to, you know, maybe they even have gone out and chartered their own ships. Is there a lot of hands inside that? So you have suppliers, upstream suppliers and raw material. You have, you know, you know, you think of like an iPhone well, it may have, there may be, you know, 20 different suppliers that are supplying different components that go into an iPhone. Even furniture has that. Something that's less sophisticated, you know, like a chair. But you've got the wood suppliers, you get the paint suppliers, you get the resin suppliers, you've got the people that provide the nails, and so you have all these supply chains that are sort of intermingled. And the problem is that no one's really touching the customer. So what happened in the early part of the cycle is that all of the big box retailers and really everybody that was sort of touching the economy, particularly on the consumer side, just were getting so much volume of orders is that they all ordered and they all ordered at the same time. The Federal Reserve is flooding the economy of all this activity. Meanwhile, you have Congress, and this is not just in the United States, it's globally. But meanwhile, you have so monetary and fiscal policy all at once flooding the economy of, of dollars, and just global liquidity is massively increasing, and the velocity of money is massively increasing. And naturally, that's going to be spent. At the same time, you have consumers shifting from services to physical goods consumption. So all of a sudden, you have this massive surge of purchasing and goods consumption happening at the very same time that world manufacturing was shut down across the globe. And it takes a while for us to sort of bring that back on all at once. It's not going to happen all at once. It takes uh, in sputters in different countries and even in different states and different cities started up 
different sort of levels of velocity. You also had at the very same time different companies and you had labor shortages at the same time. So yeah, all this stuff happening at once. And meanwhile, when it all comes back on, or at least we get this surge of activity, which really took us up until 2021 before things were sort of restored at a level that we would say the economy, the production part of the economy is back into back into production, is you have this backlog of orders that, that were taking place. You had the normal level of orders with an exaggerated amount of demand. And then all of a sudden, we have to produce all these goods all at once, and you have a finite amount of capacity in the system. So all of a sudden, just transportation capacity alone, the number of ships, the number of trucks, the number of trains, all of this stuff is capacity constrained. Remember, the freight market only builds the amount of capacity it needs to handle the amount of freight that flows over the economy. And it's going to respond to that demand based on the amount of near-term demand. People don't buy trucks if they can't if they can't keep them running. People don't buy airplanes if they can't keep them running. People don't buy ships if they can't keep them running and full. And so all of a sudden, all of this stuff is happening all at once and it's flooding and it creates these massive bottlenecks. Meanwhile, what's happening at the retailers and what's happening at manufacturers is they're starting to panic because they can't get their hands on the goods that are ordering, they're ordering. And there's so much consumer demand, so they end up overcorrecting for that. So all of a sudden, their traditional suppliers that are perhaps in China, they say, I can't get my hands on this piece of furniture or these TVs. So rather than ordering, just keeping their orders normal, they go out and order from other suppliers. Well, that just increases massive amounts of additional demand. Well, then it all starts to flow. And we have this transportation uh, network that's, really over over demanded versus the relative capacity. And then all those ships start to show up in these bottlenecks at the ports and they can't get offloaded fast enough. So retailers are continuing to order because the consumer activity is telling them if they order, there will be demand there. Well, all of a sudden, that all changes. Demand starts to taper off really in Q3 and Q4 in terms of this sort of excess. Consumers are still spending well, but they're starting to get out and not spend money on physical goods, but services. And all of a sudden, those slowdowns are taking place at the very same time that the Federal Reserve decides to increase interest rates, at the very same time that the, the re- those products start to show up in warehouses on shelves. And all, all of a sudden, all of this stuff is just flowing into the economy, and now we have all this excess inventory. So you can't fault anyone. The supply chain is so massive. We're talking 40% of the global economy is tied to logistics-dependent industries. And there are hundreds, well, not hundreds, but tens of millions of different, different companies that produce goods across the globe. And none of them have perfect information. And we think about Amazon and Walmart and Target being so big, and FedEx, for that matter, having such a high perspective of the economy. Think about this for a second. FedEx, as a percent of global logistics movement, this is the, one of the largest logistics companies in the world, sees about 1% of all freight or all transportation logistics volume in its network. 1% for a company as big as FedEx. UPS is relatively the same size. DHL, relative to the same size. These three major companies, which are the backbone of consumer parcel, the backbone of, of what we think of logistics in a consumer basis, 
see about 3% of the logistics volume that moves to the globe. So you can only imagine a company that is that is sitting there in a, a supply chain professional that's sitting there making decisions with less than perfect information and less than perfect visibility is making the right decision at the right time based on the information they have, which is consumer demand is so high. And if I don't have the products in store, then I'm going to miss my earnings. And we saw that last year. We saw bifurcation between companies like Target, which blew out their earnings last year because they had they were able to respond to demand in terms of, of providing products to the customer. They were able to really become incredibly aggressive in providing access to goods when consumers wanted it. And we saw Bed Mouth Beyond, which did the opposite. They were sort of caught flat-footed without having inventory, and they were punished for it. And that's exactly what's taking place. Yeah, absolutely. So so one of the challenges is that to your point, the freight market is so is so large. And it's it is and look, I, I can be accused and, and should probably be careful when we say the freight market is sort of this general term that means everything. There are incredible pockets of strength. You see it in the bulk and tanker parts of the business. So energy, obviously, you're doing exceptionally well. You know, one of the things that there's a bifurcation in the market when we talk about the freight market is the American Truckers Association, which is the big lobbyist association and public advocate association for the particularly the larger part of the the trucking industry, they call them enterprise carriers, the larger trucking companies. You know, they have this index which comes out every month, which basically shows that the freight market is doing exceptionally well. It's a t- it's the tonnage index. It's the one that the Federal Reserve looks at. It is completely different than all the other data points that track the truck, the broader part of the truckload market. So the indexes we put out in terms of volume and tender rejections and, and pricing is talking about all the deterioration, not just our indexes, but but really across the, the board. And there's a number of indexes. The ATA's index, although shows this massive sort of build. And one of the things that's really interesting about that is that if you go back and look at it, and one of the things that we sort of identified in it is if you go back and look at 2019, is in the ATA index, that tonnage index, it actually looks like that the freight market was better in 2019 than 2021. And so we started digging into this because we're like, how is this possible that the ATA's index is so different than every other sort of metric in the market? And what we discovered was that it has a high correlation to U.S. crude oil production. And so if you look at it, it it has a about a 30 to 60 day lag to U.S. oil uh, crude oil production. But it actually makes sense is that Anybody involved in the tanker side of trucking is having an exceptionally good year because energy exports are incredibly robust. Energy production in the United States is continuing to increase. And it just makes sense that the tanker side of the freight market, that big liquid bulk side of it, would be doing exceptionally well. So that is an exception to what I'm talking about here. And perhaps you know, we should probably be more cautious when we sort of make these big blanket statements about the freight market, the trucking market, because the reality is that it is such a fragmented market and there are so many different modes of traffic. But there are exceptions to sort of the softness and sort of the recessionary activity that we talk about is that tanker market. Anybody that's in the energy and chemicals and sort of part of the market of moving energy related goods are doing exceptionally well right now, and they're certainly not feeling any of the pain that we're talking about. I assume you mean autonomous trucks. <laughs> not, and it, not that close, frankly. 
So we're don't tell Musk we're, that he might he might he might get us off the platform. Don't say that to Musk. What's that? I'm saying don't say that to Musk. He might kick us off Twitter <laughs> if, you, if you say that. Well, I mean, in all due respect to Mr. Musk, he promised us two hundred thousand Tesla semis by the end of this year. And they've yet to actually produce or have actually delivered a production semi to any of the customers that ordered them. So I'm still waiting for the Tesla semi that that he promised. So having said that, autonomous trucks has been a lot written, a, a lot of sort of discussion about it. You know, I would say that if you'd asked me five years ago or, you know, in 2018, I discussed this, we predicted it would be a 2030 and beyond is development. We still believe that. We, we, there are certainly a lot of sort of field tests uh, with companies investing in autonomous trucks in the United States doing field tests. These are very small pilots with very, what we call closed loop environments. We're not seeing anything that suggests that there is sort of commercialization is near term. And I, I would say that the United States is probably not going to be the leader in autonomous vehicles if nothing more than the fact that our regulatory environment as a democracy means that you're going to have a lot of sort of implementation obstructions to that. So it's going to take longer to, to implement autonomous trucks in the United States from a regulatory environment. When I'm talking point to point, I'm not talking about very closed loop sort of highway to highway autonomous trucks before you'll see it overseas. The other thing is you don't see it really in a lot of closed loop applications you do see some stuff around ports, but we, we know how fraught that's been with the labor labor really fighting it. Um, and so until you see it happen in other countries at scale, I doubt that you'll see it in the United States at scale. I feel like that's a good transition to another interesting question that's, that's on my mind, which is how do cyber attacks impact the freight industry? So I'm saying that because I, on, on the homepage of freight, FreightWaves.com, which I encourage everybody to take a look at, there's a whole piece about cyber attacks disrupting Mexico's transportation system. Talk about that, because I think that's an interesting dynamic that kind of throws a lot of the trend analysis off. Yeah, well, one of the sort of disadvantages of the freight market in terms of sort of reacting to these issues is that it's so fragmented. So it has this really violent boom and bust cycle. But one of the advantages that it actually has, because of the fragmented nature, it means that cyber attacks in terms of disrupting what you and I would be concerned about as consumers, aren't that obstructive. So you think about, you know, Maersk has had a major cyber attack uh, over the past two years, uh, which is a, the you know, one of the sort of jockeys for position number one, number two is the, the largest container line in the world. It had a major cyber attack. Expediter is one of the largest forwarders bringing freight across the globe, particularly in the United States and North America, had a major cyber attack. FedEx had a division, TNT, that had a major cyber attack. Consumers didn't feel it for the most part. Investors may have felt that if they had exposure to those companies because these companies were down for a couple of days. It's very different than when the Colonial Pipeline shuts down because the Colonial pi Pipeline just moves so much volume of goods. That is a, a really sort of obstruction point. Your cyber attack exposure would be where you had these significant bottlenecks. So it would be things like the ports. So if the port of Long Beach or LA were to experience a major cyber attack, that would slow the, the flow of goods. There are alter alternative ports, but we'd certainly fill it because it's such an important port of entry into the United States. If the port of Houston were to be to experience a cyber attack, particularly from energy exports, that would be concerning. Major airports where you have large cargo movement, places like Memphis or even Anchorage, Alaska, 
you probably would experience some disruption in freight flows. But the advantage that the, the freight and transportation infrastructure has, and this is the reason that terrorists, as a general rule, have never really disrupted the flow of cargo, because you would think that would be an instruction point or an obvious target, is that it really is because it's so fragmented and there's so many participants and so many alternative ways to move freight, even as as big as some of these companies are, like FedEx and UPS specifically, is that it's very hard to actually strangle these companies. And so we cyber attacks are certainly a risk for individual companies. And frankly, a lot of the companies in our space have not invested in the technology and have protected the systems to the degree that they perhaps should. It's not as if consumers should worry about this as a major point of concern. Frankly, there are much there are different parts of the economy that are probably much more vulnerable and will immediately disrupt consumer activity than what you would see if a transportation company were to be attacked. And that happens all the time. We report it on a frequent basis. But it's just too fragmented to really impact consumers. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. By the way, everybody here in the space, please make sure you follow Craig Fuller here on Twitter and check FreightWaves.com. Again, I will have this as an edited podcast under the Lead Lag Live banner on all your favorite platforms. There's a question I got from he DM'd me, which is uh, a really good one, and it relates actually to market movement a bit here, saying, uh, can you ask him, what what are some of the effects you're seeing from onshoring? And the reason he's saying that, and something I've observed too, which is why I continue to think we're probably in this melt-up scenario, is that the industrials are on fire. You look at Caterpillar, you look at Honeywell, you look at a lot of these big industrial companies, they are really getting some some serious relative strength, just as everybody's still ultra-bearish. Talk about some of the trends when it comes to onshoring and and how that might be impacting the the you know, domestic economy going forward. So onshoring and nearshoring, you know, in terms of freight movement, these things are sort of multi-year trends. It's not it's not as easy, you know. If you had a retailer like Walmart that wanted to move from a supplier say in China to a supplier that's in the United States, it, it is you know they can make that move. It isn't going to necessarily change the sort of short-term landscape in terms of how manufacturing is done. It certainly creates some demand and makes these businesses that are domestic more robust. And we we certainly have seen this shift of that. I think what we're looking for is sort of fundamental, large-scale movement of products and production from overseas. And that's going to take years to play out. You can't simply move a supply chain and decide you're going to move a supplier and all of a sudden move it instantly to the United States. There has to be a whole supporting ecosystem. And and you can see this even in manufacturing, major manufacturing centers in the United States, is that they tend to cluster. And the reason they cluster is because not only do you have a production plant that that is is producing the finished goods, but you also have all the suppliers that feed into that. So two most relevant examples that I can think of in my sort of personal experience is the auto supplier market. So when Volkswagen built a plant in Chattanooga, Tennessee, they mandated that they needed not just their production plants, this is the the only plant in North America or in the United States for Volkswagen. And they mandated that not only did the state gave them incentives, but they also wanted an incentive regime to bring in their suppliers. And so part of that is that the if I move in a production plant, I also have to have my suppliers near me. The other great example of that is also in my neighborhood, which is Dalton, Georgia, which is sort of the home of 
the floor covering industries so of carpet, wood, tile, et cetera, you know, Dalton, Georgia, a suburb of Atlanta or even Chattanooga is a major floor covering cluster. There's a lot of floor covering plants. The reason is that the raw material suppliers are there. The tufting machines, the people that make the machines are there. The technicians that can build the machines and work on the machines are there. And so there's this cluster of talent, expertise, and material suppliers that are there. So we're talking about moving supply chains. It means that not only do I need to move my own production, but I also have to have my suppliers near. And so those, those developments will play out over the course of perhaps a decade. And we are certainly seeing real fundamental movement. You know, we do a lot of site selection analysis for companies where they're thinking about, okay, I want to move a production plant or I want to move a warehouse where I put it. We're certainly seeing a surge of that activity, but it's not something that's going to show up in the data near term. It's going to be a more linear progression until we get to the point of sort of an inflection point. There is a, a lot of concern about the fact that in order to do that and pull that off and move perhaps production from China is that you have this massive labor challenge in the United States. And so it's going to create challenges that we're going to be fraught with in order to move it. I do think it is very bullish for places like Mexico, Colombia, Vietnam, because they're going to be able to take on some of that labor, you know, low value goods, low skill goods production that doesn't necessarily require as much of a sophisticated supply chain as perhaps what you would see with some of the higher end goods like automotive. You know, I think this new semiconductor build's gotten fraught with a lot of political posturing. I actually think it's a positive development because we just have so much geopolitical risk with Taiwan and exposure to semiconductor production that it makes sense to to really invest in it here in the United States because not only will it create some production here locally in the United States, it also will help us create a more vast ecosystem of industry that is dependent and supportive of that. Yeah, this is more just a short-term observation. It's it's I'm sharing at the top of the nest here. It's just interesting to me. And again, credit to Arthur for pointing this out. But if you look at industrials relative to the S&P, even just last week, uh, none of that is suggestive of a breakdown in the context of a supposedly more hawkish Fed. A lot of, a lot of interesting dynamics just from a – on a side note, intermarket perspective. You know, there's been a lot of uh, ink spilled on this and a lot of discussions built on it. You know, the, the fact is that Amazon built its logistics network. It's a little different than AWS. You have to remember that if you're building something like AWS – and your Amazon, you're building it initially to serve your own interest, and then you overbuild capacity. The problem with logistics infrastructure is that it's very expensive. And not only does it require capital to build, say, new warehouses and distribution centers and hubs of sort of commerce, sorting centers, etc., that takes a lot of capital in itself. It also requires talent. I have to staff these things. It becomes really inefficient to do that versus, say, AWS, which is cloud computing, which doesn't require, for every additional capital expenditure, I don't require an additional unit of labor. The problem with like building physical logistics infrastructure is I have to go get labor in addition to all the capital expenditures. And so one of the things we've learned really from COVID is that no matter how ambitious Amazon is in building a robust logistics network to really offer services to the broader part of the, the freight market is that it is incredibly challenging, incredibly inefficient to do that. And that's why we've seen the pullback. 
in terms of their capital expenditures, canceling warehouses, really revisiting their labor and growth plans. And so a lot has been spilled about it. A lot has been discussed. But certainly the logistics network is the largest and most sophisticated logistics network on the planet, at least when it comes to retailers. But we haven't seen them necessarily take a significant amount of volume away from FedEx, UPS, and DHL, except for their own organic volumes. You know, they're far more important to UPS than they are to FedEx or have been. And so while they have insourced a lot of that volume, we, we, we certainly have not seen a significant amount of progress and them becoming a rival carrier outside of their own organic volumes. Now, we do see Amazon having great success with managing logistics inside of their own sellers network. So these are third parties that sell inside the Amazon ecosystem. But we've not seen a situation where Amazon is taking on third-party market share in terms of outside of their own ecosystem and putting significant amount of pressure on the other carriers. I think one of the things that has happened is that the e-commerce and DTC market have grown so big and so important and so vast and continue to just grow relative to volume, relative to where they were, is that there is just a lot more volume to go around. And because of it, it isn't necessarily stunted UPS and FedEx's growth because of it. So I, I think it's, there's a lot to be said for it. And, and Amazon deserves an enormous amount of credit. But this is not an AWS story. This is a story that is more about building a logistics network to handle its own organic volume inside of its own sellers network and bring solutions to those sellers versus perhaps what we would identify as a sort of FedEx or UPS rival. Let's do one more question, and then we'll wrap up. Well, I think, I think to your point, you know, it's not just Kentucky, Tennessee. You've got to add Georgia to the mix. You've got to add Texas to the mix in terms of major supply chain. I think what we're seeing is that if we talk about this reshoring trend, the Sun Belt, and particularly the southern portion of the country, which includes, you know, Georgia all the way to Texas, up to up towards you know, Missouri, even in Kentucky, and really that Sun Belt section, but in the southeastern portion, and I'm going to put Texas in that, I-35 East in that story, is that this is going to be the, the heart of the American near reshoring and sort of logistics complex. And because of that, I think Georgia has arguably been the most progressive at investing in logistics infrastructure of any of the states in the United States, even in some ways has been superior to Texas and the fact that they have been far more forward thinking about investing in in its port infrastructure and its rail lines, its intermodal rail lines from the port of Savannah up through Chatsworth, Georgia, which is just outside of Chattanooga, to really take a lot of that flow of cargo off the interstate system. You know, it's invested in building an enormous amount of infrastructure around Hartsfield, Atlanta, in terms of air freight. So Georgia deserves a lot of credit. Tennessee has sort of caught up in recent years of trying to attract manufacturing, particularly around automotive and EV and, and those types of elements. So we're seeing a lot of investment in that. I think I'm incredibly bullish on this part of the country, not just because I live here, but because it does benefit from a lot of the geographical so, benefits and infrastructure. So, so, yeah, go ahead, Craig. Yeah. I, mean, I, I can add some, some thoughts. I, again, I, I, I try to, as much as I, I keep saying I'm, I'm loud on Twitter, a lot of my stuff is based on intermarket relative movement and 
Craig, I think I think you'd be very well versed on this, but but I'll see if I can add some thoughts here. I mean, I like I, I think generally, and I, I don't know that I understand necessarily all all of what you're asking. Generally, I am incredibly bullish on this part of the country. And again, I I, I, I take Texas. You know, this is my just the South, just that Texas over as 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 big of an economy as Canada. So we're talking about concentration of economic activity in the in the southern part of the country. It's as big as the country of Canada and will continue to benefit from all these macro trends. As trade shifts more towards Latin America, as, as you've talked about or we have talked about, as companies look at bringing production back to the United States, looking at labor availability, looking at infrastructure, looking at a constructive government support and state support, municipal support of industry and logistics infrastructure – this part of the country, you should be incredibly bullish. We certainly, you know, that means things like real estate is going to do exceptionally well. That thing, things like local economies are going to do exceptionally well. The banking sector, companies that have exposure to this part of the country are going to do exceptionally well over the long term. It doesn't mean that we, that it is necessarily going to be a direct linear, you know, it's going to be bits and starts to this, right? As I've talked about, this is a 10, this is a decade long change. Supply chains don't change overnight. But over the long run, you have to be incredibly bullish on this part of the country simply because of all of the reasons that the and the automotive sector was probably the first to bring production overseas companies investing in production in the United States. They didn't pick Detroit. They picked as you you know Kentucky, they picked Tennessee, they picked Georgia, they picked Alabama, they picked South Carolina. Just look at Greenville, South Carolina, and and how well that city has done with benefiting from BMW moving in. Now it is a major growth center of the United States because it has invested in manufacturing and, and infrastructure. And it has certainly benefited from the growth of the port of Savannah and the port of Charleston. And so we are going to see a lot of investment of companies coming back to the South. And I would say that I'm incredibly bullish on that because we benefit from all of the reasons we've talked about. You also have to look at Texas. There's going to be far more trade with Mexico, both indirect or direct production in Mexico, but also some of the other countries in Mexico, as well as Latin America, that's going to benefit places like the Port of Houston. It's going to benefit the state of Texas. Texas is far better positioned in terms of understanding that North-South trade than any other state in the country. Texans have been trading with Mexico for the past 20, or really since its formation, but certainly the past 20 years, have really built a lot of inland into Mexico activity. And so I just think you have to be incredibly bullish on this part of the country because of that. Look, I, I think I'll argue two points. One is if you asked someone in freight about Uber freight, Flexport as well, Convoy, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And you said, what is your what are your thoughts of these companies? A a someone who's been in the industry would say, they're doing the same thing I do as a company. They're, you know, they're they're matching freight. They're building these technology and software systems and sort of things that, you know, they will describe as innovative. People in the freight industry will say, well, I've been doing that for years. And I've heard this is the common refrain 
from people that are in the industry. And that's how they would challenge a lot of the sort of, including Freightways that covers these stories, but also broader sort of tech media that covers it. That is true. And that is, you know, everything that a lot of these companies have embraced and talked about has been done by many of the companies and many of the participants for many, many years. And ultimately, they are still going to have the same challenges from an economic cycle as every freight company is. Having said that, it is also true that those companies are aggressively investing in solutions that democratize a lot of these offerings and make it more efficient. And a lot of the technology improvements and investment that these companies are making is in things that necessarily as consumers, we don't experience. It's a lot of it is improving the cost of managing the exceptions, the cost of matching freight, the infrastructure and capital that goes into it. Probably the best example of that, and we're going to talk about Uber Freight specifically, is you know for, for so long, freight companies, and C.H. Robinson is the largest freight broker in the world, and they play a very similar role to what Uber Freight does. And I think if you sort of look at them, C.H. Robinson has been around for 100 years, but really in freight brokerage for the last 40. The argument that an executive at C.H. Robinson would make is we do the same thing as Uber Freight. The difference comes down to this, is that when Uber Freight and Convoy and others came into the market, is they didn't wait for their customers to ask them to build trailer pools. What they went out and did was they went out and sourced their own trailer pools. And they built these dynamic trailer pools, not with customer demand necessarily there. They invest in the technology well in advance of their customer demand. And that product-led growth and that marketing and discussion and bringing solutions is different than what the industry historically operated. Sage Robinson was not investing in the technology well before they had customer demand. You would never do that in a traditional freight business because it is a commodity and it is fraught with a lot of these cycles. You would never go make substantial investments in technology and solutions well in advance of customer demand. But one of the things that the Silicon Valley companies really taught the freight industry, the incumbents, is that they were willing to make those investments well in advance of customer demand. Flexport did it on the international uh, scene where they went out and chartered, you know, Ryan Peterson went out and chartered the 747 in conjunction with one of its big partners. We've seen that with Uber Freight, where they bought these trader pools or have at least these trader pools or convoy, et cetera. And I think that's one of the big, more remarkable things is they, they really, their success is driven by two things. One is forward investment before there's real-time demand and they're exceptionally good communicators and marketers at talking about how these solutions are solving customer problems. That's an entirely different place that these companies participate. At the end of the day, this isn't, these are not game-changing technologies. They're just game-changing the way that they've used investor capital and venture capital to really invest in solutions well in advance of customer demand. I think that's a good place to end this Twitter space. Again, everybody, make sure you follow Craig Fuller, check out FreightWaves as well. Craig, you're, you're wildly knowledgeable. I had a, a couple of back and forth with, with other people I've had in this space, like Sal Bubba-Mercagliano and, and several others. I want to try and do a group space with you at some point soon. But thank you, everybody, for joining this Sunday. And everybody, enjoy the rest of your day. Thank you, Craig. The content in this program is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any information or other material as investment, financial, tax, or other advice. The views expressed by the participants are solely their own.
A participant may have taken or recommended any investment position discussed, but may close such position or alter its recommendation at any time without notice. Nothing contained in this program constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Please consult your own investment or financial advisor for advice related to all investment decisions. Don't forget to follow at Leadlag Report on X, Instagram, Threads, and YouTube, and check out the Leadlag Report at www.leadlagreport.com. Use promo code PODCAST30 for two weeks free and 30% off to get access to award-winning research and anticipate stock market crashes, corrections, and bear markets.